So today we are beginning a new sermon series. We're going to be walking through the book of Ephesians in the New Testament. This is a letter, an epistle, and, and we'll talk about the author of this letter. We'll talk about the, the audience, the message today as we, as we walk through this together. And somebody pointed out to me uh, that I, I forgot to mention that we were starting a new series last week as we uh, finished up Ecclesiastes. I think Jonathan mentioned it, mentioned it the, the week before. Uh, but it gave me the freedom. I could have changed last minute what I was going to do. But, uh, but it, it is, I think it will, it will be an interesting change going from the book of Ecclesiastes, which, I mean, arguably that is probably one of the, the darker books of the Bible, um, that it, it, it feels pessimistic at first. And, and so you're, you're in the depths of vanity, vanity, all is vanity. You go to Ephesians which is arguably one of the most optimistic books uh, in the Bible, that, that it, it brings you in the first chapter immediately to 10,000 feet in the air, just looking at the beauty and the glory of God and the plan of, of, of salvation, and it you know, soars at 10,000 feet, surveying the beautiful landscape of, of Christianity. And so I think that, that this will be helpful for all of us to work our way through this letter. And so again, this is the letter of Paul to the Ephesians. And today we're going to be looking at the first two verses, verses 1 and 2. Hear the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the, the word of God, and, and we thank you that your word is so diverse in its format that, that we have so many different genres in the Bible and each one of them speaks to us in a different way, but each one proclaims Christ and, and it's exactly what we need every day. And so as we work our way through this glorious letter that we would go from the mountaintops of, of the glory and the plan of God to the seeing the depths of our sin and that we would grow in the knowledge and the love of Christ through this. And so I pray that you would guide me um, guide all of our hearts for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Perhaps you had the experience that I would have as a child where when it's your birthday, you have presents, and you're so excited to open the presents on your birthday, but then there is a, a card taped to the top of the present. And as a child, every child will pull off the card and throw it to the side and tear open the present. And, and then it's always the, the wise mother who says, now, dear, you have to open the card first. Uh, and my wife still reminds me of this <laughs> today sometimes. Well, you need to open the card first. And, and so you, you have to stop. You, you open the card and you say, say okay, this is from so-and-so, 
You see that it's actually to you. You're not opening someone else's present by accident. And there may be some sort of introductory note from the person saying something about your birthday or something about you. And it, and it leads into the presentation of that present. And that's how you can think of these, these first two words of Ephesians. That when you read the letters of Paul, you're tempted to rip open the present, throw the card to the side, and say, this is just, it's just introductory material. This isn't really important. And we so much want to get to verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And he goes into this rapturous praise all the way through chapter 1. We want to get there. But yet the car is important, the introduction. And so today, if you think of this as the, the, the beginning of the card, the present of Ephesians, you open the card, and in the card you're going to see the author, the audience, and the message. The author, who is it from? The audience, who is it to? And then the message, what is it about? And so let's start with the author. This is from whom? And it tells us in verse 1, look there in your Bible. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. This is from Paul. And we learn later in the letter from chapter 3, verse 1, and from chapter 4, verse 1, that Paul wrote this letter from prison. This is one of the prison epistles. And he probably wrote it around A.D. 62, he was imprisoned in Rome for the sake of the gospel. But as you look at that first word, the word Paul, the name of the author, it's important to remember the background. And I'm sure most of you are familiar that this man, Paul, was originally Saul, Saul of Tarsus, the great persecutor of the church, the great Pharisee who hated the church, tried to stomp the church out in violence. But then on the road to Damascus, going to persecute Christians, he, he was knocked down, encountered the, the resurrected Christ himself. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then his life was transformed. And then he went from Saul, the great persecutor of the church, to Paul, who was one of the, the greatest theologians in history. The, so much of our understanding of the gospel of salvation is hammered out in the letters of Paul. He's one of the greatest church planters in history that he went throughout the, the Roman world, the Greco-Roman world, planting new churches, new congregations, He's one of the greatest cross-cultural missionaries, that he was a Jew who was called to go to Gentiles to bridge this gap between Jew and Gentile that people wouldn't cross. And so he is a, a model of cross-cultural missions to follow. And then he's ultimately one of the, the greatest martyrs, giving his life as a martyr in Rome during the reign of Nero. That's the author 
of this letter. And you say, well, why does it matter that Paul wrote the letter of Ephesians? And there are some scholars, especially more critical scholars, who doubt that Paul wrote this letter. Of course, you can find critical scholars that doubt everything, so that's not surprising. But I think as Christians who believe in the authority of the Bible, the fact that it says it's written by Paul is enough for us. But also, as we think about the, the life of Paul and we, his writing here, that his life becomes an illustration of one of the major themes of this book. And one of the major themes is God's grace in changing a sinner. And if you were to look over at chapter 2, chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, we'll get here eventually, but I'll read it right now. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the, and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And so here Paul's talking to, to you, he's talking to me, he's talking to humanity that we were all once dead in our trespasses. We all once were going against God. And he was going against God as a religious person who didn't understand the grace of God. <clears throat> and so this is almost his story here. It says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. That Paul's life is an illustration of the message of Ephesians. This is who you were, dead in your sins. This is God coming to you in his grace to make you alive. And, and that's so important for us today because you here today may not like where your life is. You may not like the path that you're on. But so much what we hear in society is that people can never change, that, that change is impossible. On some level, we don't believe that, that people change. You just believe what you always believe throughout your life. But Paul's life proves that that isn't true, that if God could change Saul of Tarsus <clears throat> into Paul of the church, he can change you and me as well. And so that's one of my, my prayers for us in this letter, is that we will be changed by this letter. And maybe it's you encountering Jesus for the first time, being transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of the beloved Son, that it's in the pages of Ephesians that you see Jesus for the first time. But it could also be change for believers, that as we're seeking to grow more and more in our faith, more and more in our love with Christ, that what we encounter here in the pages of Ephesians is the same resurrected Jesus that Paul met on the road to Damascus. We don't meet him standing before us in physical form in this moment, but we encounter him just as, as real, just as present in the words of Scripture coming to us from this author, Paul. But look again at verse 1 in your Bible. We're still thinking about the author of the letter. We said that it's Paul, 
But then it, he defines his identity further. He says he's Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. This is who this letter is from. Now that word apostle, it can be a, a technical term in the New Testament. Sometimes the word apostle is refer, it refers to the authoritative apostles commissioned directly by Jesus to carry the message of the gospel out to the world, to be authoritative witnesses of the resurrection. And it's the, the apostolic authority that stands behind the authorship of the New Testament. So that's the technical way the word is used. Sometimes in the Bible, the word can be used in a semi-technical way. So for instance, Barnabas in Acts 14.4 is called an apostle. He wasn't one of the apostles directly commissioned by Jesus, but yet in his connection to the apostles as one who was sent out with the gospel, he had an apostolic role. But then the word apostle can also be used in a non-technical way in the New Testament. So an example would be Philippians 2.25. Most English translations use the word messenger, but it's the same word in the original language. The word apostle wasn't a word that was coined by Christians. It wasn't invented by Christians. It's a word that you might have used at the time in the language, in the vernacular, to refer to someone who is sent out as a messenger, a representative for another person. So again, it could be technical, semi-technical, or non-technical. But then as we look at the text today, you say, well, which is it in Ephesians 1, verse 1? And I believe that it is using the word apostle in the technical sense here. But Paul is, isn't just saying that he is a messenger who is bringing the gospel. But when he says Paul, an apostle, he's identifying himself as one of the authoritative apostles commissioned by Christ. There are the 12 apostles that went with Jesus. You remember Judas betrays Jesus. Um, and then after he ends his life, uh, then the, the disciples select a, another apostle. And so in a sense, you could think of Paul as the 13th apostle, uh, that he is he's being brought on board as an authoritative witness. And you see that in the language, that he is an apostle of Christ Jesus, that he is an apostle who belongs to Christ. He is an apostle who's being sent out by Christ, who is commissioned by Christ as a witness to the world. And we know that it's coming in this authoritative sense because of the language that he uses, that he is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. That he doesn't come by his own will. He's not coming on his own authority. He's not representing himself, but he's coming to speak for another. That he's coming to speak for Christ, to speak for God as a chosen representative. And so you can think about this as an ambassador. This is a, a common image of this, that, that if you have an ambassador who's sent out by a king to go to a foreign nation, the ambassador speaks 
not just as an individual, but he speaks representing his nation, representing the interests of the king. He's not operating as a private individual. It's not his words he's bringing, that it's the words of the nation that are coming. And it's the same with Paul, that he comes to speak the words of Christ, of Christ, by the will of God. And this has implications for us as we work our way through this letter. That we read here not simply the words of Paul. That we can't dismiss the words of this letter saying, oh, well, that's just Paul. Because behind Paul, the human author, is God, the divine author. So remember, I, I had the image that you, you, you get the present. That's the letter of Ephesians. You, you open the card. You say, who is it from? It's from Paul, but ultimately this is from God, from Christ himself, God's word to us. And so our response then is to receive the gift that is in this letter as what it is, the very word of God, to humble ourselves under it, to, to submit to it, to seek to, to understand it, to internalize it, to, to live by it, because it is the word of God. And so that's our first heading. That's the author of this letter. But then we said that you, you open the card. Usually a good card will say who it's from, but it will also say who it's to. And, and so we see the same thing here, that it follows the form of a letter that we see the audience at the, in the second half of verse 1. So look there in your Bible. He says, To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. So we learn a lot about the audience of this letter in these short, this short sentence here, the short phrase. So let's unpack it, walk through it. So the first thing you'll notice is that this is two saints, to the saints who are in Ephesus. The word in Greek in the original language literally means the holy ones. So he's saying to the holy ones who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, when we hear the word saint, we think of what developed later in church history where the word saint became a word for a special class of Christians. That if you were a martyr, you'd maybe be declared a saint by the church. Or if you were an important theologian, you become a saint of the church. That there are there's the ordinary Christian, and then there's the saint. And maybe even we use that in our the way we speak. We say, I'm, I'm no saint. You know, I go to church, but I, I'm no saint. But according to the Bible, every single true believer in Christ is a saint. Romans 8.27, Paul says this, that God searches the heart and knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. He's not saying that the Spirit intercedes for the elite Christians, not for the ordinary Christians. No, the, 
he intercedes for the saints. That's every true believer. Or in Romans 12, 13, he says that we should contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Again, he's not saying support the really good Christians, ignore the ordinary Christians. No, but he's saying every believer is a saint. So you think about this in your life. Do you identify as a saint? Are you a saint here today? And so you ask the question, have you repented and trusted in Christ alone for salvation? Are you resting in Jesus Christ for salvation? And if you are, the Bible tells us that you are united to Christ by faith, that you are in Christ. And that means that your sin is counted to Christ on the cross. His perfect righteousness, his holiness is counted to you. That you are, are set apart, that, that there has been a definitive break with your former identity. That formerly you were united to Adam. Your central identity was son of Adam, sinner, enemy of God, destined for judgment. But when you repent and trust in Christ, your identity changes apart from anything that you've done. The moment that you repent and trust in Christ, truly, that you become saint, heir of the kingdom of God, adoption into the family of God, righteous in the sight of God, clothed in the, the righteousness of Christ, identified fully with Adam, sure of your final destiny in Christ. That is who you are in Christ. That is your identity. And in modern society, we talk a lot about identity. And I mentioned that for our Sunday school, we're going to be talking about the understanding of identity in our culture. But for believers, as believers, our identity should be saint. But if you think about it, the identity of saint is both an identity and a calling at the same time. It's an identity because it's who we actually are the moment that we repent and trust in Christ. Sometimes theologians will call that the indicative. It's the statement of fact. This is who you are. But then sainthood is also our calling because when you repent and trust in Christ, I mean, you could, we all have sin. We all have so much to figure out that the Christian life is this gradual growth in holiness from the day of our conversion to the day of our death when we're confirmed in righteousness. That there, there is a, 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 gro a growth. There's baby Christians, mature Christians. And so we are saints. And because we're saints, our calling is to live like saints. You are fully a saint, and so go out and live like it. Live into the reality. Live into the identity that is already yours in Christ. And it's interesting that in the introduction to Romans, Paul says, to those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, that 
In one sense, they are saints, and in another sense, they're called to be saints, that we are definitively in Christ. We've broken from our former identity, but at the same time, we're to grow in that identity progressively throughout our life to be more and more conformed to the image of Christ. It says in Scripture, be holy even as I am holy. We are holy ones who are called to live that out in our life more and more. Not perfect in this life, but ever growing towards the goal of Christ. But again, look in your Bible at verse 1. So we're saying that what's the audience? The audience is saints. This is written to saints. And, and that's a, as a side note, I think that's significant for our reading of Ephesians, that this speaks to non-believers, but the primary audience of Ephesians is believers. I think that's significant. But notice he says, to the saints who are in Ephesus. They are in Ephesus. Now, now look at your Bible, and I would be willing to guess that the majority of you, depending on your Bible translation, have a footnote by the word apostle, or somewhere in that, that area. And if you, you, you or sorry, by the word um, not apostle, by the word Ephesus. And if you follow that footnote to the margin of your Bible, you'll see that it says that in many early manuscripts, that prepositional phrase, in Ephesus, is not found. Some of the best earliest manuscripts don't include that phrase. So it's to the saints who are faithful in Christ Jesus. But there is also a lot of witness from early manuscripts that this is actually part of the text. Which is ironic in one sense that that's the name of the letter. <laughs> and so is that actually in the text or not? And the way that I, I think we should understand that is that Ephesians is very different from any of the other letters of Paul. You read the, the letter of Paul to the Galatians. He's addressing very specific problems in that church. And those problems in the church of Galatia obviously speak to the church throughout the ages. Or you read the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. Very specific problems that he's addressing in that church, in that congregation. But Ephesians is very general. It doesn't address specific concerns. That The concerns throughout Ephesians are concerns for all believers, all places, all times. And so most scholars would say that this was a circular letter. Um, and in other words, it's a letter that was designed, written to be sent to one church, probably the central church in the metropolitan area, but then to be disseminated or circulated to the churches in the surrounding region. And so likely what happened in the early manuscripts is the church it came to the church in Ephesus. I believe that that phrase in Ephesus was original in the original text, but when people were copying it, they said, okay, we're sending it to a church in the suburbs of Ephesus. We'll leave off the phrase in Ephesus. It didn't make it into some of the early manuscripts. I think that's the best way to understand that. But I think it is worth discussing, though, the city of Ephesus. And I believe that was original to the pen of Paul, that it's to the church in Ephesus, or at the very least, to churches within this region of Ephesus. So if you were to look in the back of your Bible, you would see a map, most likely. And those maps show you where these cities are. So the, the, the city of Ephesus was located on the coast 
of what is modern-day Turkey. Uh, it was a it was a river that came out into a seaport, and it was a center of trade of commerce. Um, incidentally, as they excavate the city of Ephesus, it's now quite far from the coast itself. Uh, and the reason is because even at the time of Paul, they had to work hard to clear all the sediment out of the, the harbor because it was filling up even at their time. And eventually it just filled up and the land moved out from where the city is. But it was a very large city as well. Some estimate that it had as many as 250,000 people. It was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. And just to give perspective, that the city limits of Wilmington, Delaware has 70,000 people. And so the city of Ephesus was two times the, the size of, or at least or two-thirds bigger uh, than the city limits of Wilmington, Delaware. So it's a, it's a big city. But the city wasn't just known for its commerce and trade. It was known for pagan religion, that there was a temple in the city of Ephesus, a, a temple to Artemis, that had been rebuilt after a fire in 356 BC, and it ranked as one of the seven wonders of the world. The people would travel around to come and see this incredible temple in the city. And remember that factor is in the book of Acts, the, the history of the early church. Paul was planting churches in Ephesus. He was preaching the gospel. And many, many people came to faith in the city of Ephesus. So much so that it started to hurt the business of the silversmiths who made the idols for the temple. And all the silversmiths got together and said, this guy Paul in this Christian church is going to hurt our business. And so they led a massive riot where they tried to kick Paul and the Christians out of the city in order to preserve the economy of the city, which shows the impact of the gospel on the culture of Ephesus. But it also shows the centrality of this temple in the city. The last thing then on, on the, the location of Ephesus is just to speak of the church. What do we know of the church in Ephesus who originally received this letter? Well, we know that they are a faithful church. They were a faithful church, um, partly because Paul can send them a general letter that if, if something was going on, he would have sent very specific instruction as he does elsewhere in the New Testament. And then also later, this church was led by Timothy. We preached through the book of Timothy not that long ago. Timothy was a pastor in Ephesus. They had a wonderful, young, godly pastor. And it's one of the seven letters mentioned in the book of Revelation. And even there, as Jesus addresses the, the seven churches, as, he, as Jesus speaks to the church in Ephesus in the book of Revelation, he says that they had lost their former love. They called them to renew their love for Christ, which shows that early on, that was, that was something that they were known for, was this deep abiding love of Christ. Even in verse 15 of chapter 1, it's that Paul says, because I heard of your faith and your love, I write these things and I, I give thanks for you. So again, we've said that this is written to saints, to people in Ephesus. But look again at verse 1. It says, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in 
Christ Jesus. Now, faithful could mean they are faithful to Christ. It could also be translated that they have faith in Christ. But really, I think both are true, that both are connected, that they were known for their faith in Christ as saints, that all saints have faith in Christ if they are saints. But then also they were known for faithfulness in living out that calling and that faith before men. But then I think the most important phrase here in verse 1 is that phrase, in Christ. In Christ. And that's one that can slip our attention, that, that we can think, okay, of course he said in Christ. This is a letter of Paul. But as we go through this letter, you'll see over and over and over again, everything is in Christ. If you ever try to memorize the book of Ephesians, it can get confusing because of how many in Christ there are within this letter. And the reason for that is because this is central to his understanding of the gospel, that the heart of the gospel is union with Christ, to be in Christ, that we are saints in Christ, that we are faithful in Christ. We are declared righteous. We are justified in Christ in union with him. We are adopted into the family of God in Christ, in union with Christ. We grow as Christians in Christ, connected to Christ, united to Christ by faith. That is at the heart of our identity as Christians, that we are saints who are in Christ first and foremost. So again, we've looked at the author. We've looked at the audience. But now let's turn finally to the message. And, and we'll, we'll, this will be very brief. This is where we'll pull things together. The message. Look at verse 2. It says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul uses this phrase in all of his letters. He, this is the way that he loved to, to greet the saints in his letters. And, in, and when we preached through the, the book of Galatians a few years ago, I, I did a whole sermon on this one phrase. And, and for this series, we're not going to do a whole series, but as we pull this together as an introduction to the book of Ephesians, I just want to focus on that word grace and that word peace. That this summarizes what the message of the gospel is. It, it, it summarizes the themes of the book of Ephesians and really the, the theme of Paul and all of his letters, that it's about grace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, that this grace, this, this unmerited favor that we could never deserve in our life that, that comes to us to draw us out of our sin, out of ourself to Christ, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's the very heart of what it is to be Christian. It's what makes Christianity different from every other religion, that it is a religion of grace, starting with Christ and his initiative. So the prayer is that, that you will experience grace in this letter. I will experience grace, the grace of Christ, and that we will extend that grace to others around us as well. But then finally, peace. Peace 
from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what does the grace of God bring to us? That it brings peace with God, that we were enemies of God. We wanted nothing to do with God. But Jesus comes and he makes peace between us and God on the cross, reconciles us to the Father, that when we repent and trust in Christ, we experience this objective peace with God. And then we'll see throughout Ephesians that that peace we have with God then should flow out into peace with others, peace with believers, that we'll see in chapter 2 that it leads to a breakdown of racial division. Paul talks about the, the breakdown of division between Jew and Gentile, that there, there's peace between people because of the grace that we have received, the peace that we have with God. But then finally, it's inner peace, this peace that surpasses understanding, this peace to know that we are in Christ, this peace to know that we are saints and that God is the one who's bringing us to himself, that the peace in every struggle, every hardship that we face that keeps us going until the end when we take possession of our inheritance to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your glory, for your love, for your power. We thank you for your grace that comes to us. We, we know that we, we're not here because we are better or we've earned anything, but we know that, that heaven is a free gift, that it's not earned or deserved, but that because of your grace, it opens up a way for us to have peace with you and peace with others and peace within ourselves. And so, Father, we, we pray that as we go through the letter of Ephesians together, that there would be a deepening, abiding sense of peace, that for those who know your peace, that they could grow deeper in that peace. For those who know your grace, that they could grow deeper in love with your grace. And for those, Lord, who have not experienced it yet, that in the pages of Ephesians, that they can encounter the grace and the peace of Christ, God our Father, for the first time, perhaps, and, and to know the identity of saints, to, to grow as those who have faith in Christ, who are united to Christ. And we thank you for Jesus, who is our life, who is our identity, that we have died. Our life is hidden with God in Christ, that when he is revealed, we will be revealed with him in glory. And we pray in his name.